This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Now, I was interested in using Twitter. I had a long-standing interest in using what we then called social media um, to be able to get situational awareness in a, a response phase of a, of a disaster or a crisis. Hi, and welcome to the Ian Weekly Show. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. This week, we are talking to Dr. David John Wild, who is a data scientist. Now think about this for a second, and you're probably going, why Why should we listen to a data scientist on the Ian Weekly Show? After reading his piece in the conversation titled, Data Science Could Help Californians Battle Wildfires, I had to have him on the show. Think about this. Australia has been battling wildfires, or bushfires down there, since November 11th. It's been a long time. And when I interviewed David about just using data and what we could do to use AI and ML to predict areas uh, that uh, could potentially have uh, fire issues, right? And, and things that I, I think you might think we know, but I think it's a little bit more deeper than that. Also using other tools for response, specifically on, on how we can do a better job of putting the fires out. I think it's definitely an interesting topic and timely at that. I think we could use all the tools that we could use, whether it be AI, whether it be ML, whether it be what other technologies that are out there. Let's get into the interview. David, welcome to Ian Weekly. Well, thank you. It's great to be on. I'm really kind of honored to be on. I love the podcast and I'm a regular listener. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. So I was reading your piece um, on uh, data science would help Californians battle future wildfires. And, and I'm sure that's it's more than just California that would, this could help out. Uh, tell me like your research and how you came up with that conclusion uh, with helping battle future wildfires. Yeah, sure. So it's been a kind of long journey. So I'm a professor of informatics and data science at Indiana University. I've been researching for about 15, 16 years before that. I worked in industry. Um, and actually, my main area of research historically has been in healthcare and drug discovery. So I've done a lot of what we now call data science in healthcare and drug discovery. Um, but I've always had a long-standing interest in emergency management and emergency and crisis response. Um, so I've kind of been, uh, actually in 20, 2014, 2015, I started, helped start the data science program at Indiana University. So it turned into a really big program. I got to meet lots of people in data science. And to, to be honest, I, I was kind of frustrated because I, you know, with that I knew a lot about crisis and emergency management. I saw what was happening with global warming and which was starting to be that inflection point where we were getting 
more, you know, at least more severe, if not more hurricanes, you know, wildfires, obviously. And I'm like, boy, somebody needs to be helping helping out here. And yet, historically, there was very little attention paid in academia, or at least in the in the kind of data side of academia or the computer science side of academia to kind of help things scale to some of these problems that we've got. So I, I made a bit of a pivot in my research about three years ago, and I just decided I'm going to make this a primary focus of my research. So, you know, we take a look at the fires that happened in California. Um, they're burning uh, hotter now. Uh, the fuel is drier than it has been in the past. And then as we record this today, uh, Perth just had a large fire uh, burn through it as, as well. And it seems like they're having the same same problems down in Australia as we are having here uh, in the United States. And I know Canada had, a couple of years ago, had a really bad fire season. So we're seeing... Um, this and well, I forget Europe had a bad fire season last year, so we're seeing this this come across globally, like you said, the global warming. Um, how do we put the data uh, to help us out as emergency managers to either predict these or or respond to? And and I know like some of the stuff that you're talking about is is really interesting as well as is you know you're aggregating information regarding shelters and and routes and things like this, but. What can we do to use this data to help prevent, say, the wildfires? Yeah, well, I like to think of it in the classic terms of the four phases of emergency management. So preparedness, mitigation, response, and recovery. And and how we use data and computation in those phases is kind of a little bit different, right? So particularly in the preparation and mitigation phase, you know, one place I think we can really have an impact is doing a lot of historical analysis of data and looking at the factors that lead to certain things happening and certain other things not happening. Uh, we've just, I mean, the explosion of accessible data about everything we've had in the last few decades is enormous. So one of the projects I'm working on right now is actually funded by the Federal Economic Development Administration. And we're looking at can we can we do a better job of profiling risk and resilience? So how do we understand maybe at a finer grain what the risks are to us in a particular location, be able to normalize those calculations of risk across different different kinds of, of hazard. You know, so the Weather Service puts out tornado risk maps and USGS puts out earthquake risk maps, but you can't, they're not in the same units, in the same format, and they're not really comparable. With resilience, it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of kind of the social science research on, on disaster resilience gets down to stuff that can be measured in census data. So we've actually got access to huge amounts of census kind of demographic data. And we're trying to integrate that with other kinds of data to say, how, how can we kind of measure how resilient a community is to something like a wildfire? Uh, so in those phases, we can do a lot of that kind of predictive work to say, what's the what changes can we make? You know, it, we can make hypotheses. If we made this change, what, how would it change the disaster risk or the disaster resilience? When it came to the response and recovery phases, it's a little different. It gets to more being about situational awareness and being able to get live data streams. Now it's also an exploding area with the Internet of Things and sensors everywhere. We just have a massive amount of data that we can potentially harness 
but it's far more data than any one human being could analyze. So we need artificial intelligence and machine learning in there to be able to pull out the really important pieces of, of information and insights for people. Yeah, you just stole my, my next question. I was going to ask you about um, how AI and ML would uh, would play into this. Um, I mean, are, are companies such as like One Concern, who we've had on the show in the past, um, who have developed uh, an ML AI uh, mapping system, or is this something that like a like GIS could pick up if we're doing layers? Like, how, how what kind of planning tool should an emergency manager be looking at uh, when trying to integrate this predictive analyst uh, analytic um, data into their planning session? Yeah, that's a really good question, and and the. And the first thing I want to say is that to, to emergency managers is you've got permission to be kind of frustrated here because you know I feel like the tools that we could you know we as technologists and as computer people could be giving you could be a million times better than they are right now. So so I think the sort of style kind of frustrates me that that the we're not really doing everything we could be to help emergency managers. And, but, you know, what I'm just starting to see that change. So, there, you know, there are startups coming out now um, that are looking at AI machine learning to help both in the kind of predictive phase and also in the, for situational awareness. But, you know, the way I think of it is that if you've got a small amount of data, often that can be humanly analyzable. So, if you're putting together your hazard mitigation plan um, and you've got, you know, three state data sources you can go to. You can kind of do it yourself. Or if you're in the field and you've got 10 video cameras um, to give you some situational awareness, you can look at those 10 video cameras. But if you've got 10,000 data feeds or 500 video cameras, you can't, a human being can't analyze that. And that's why where AI and machine learning comes in. So I think the value of AI and machine learning is in, in that middle layer between between people and between vast piles of data and computation. And it's actually about simplification more than anything. I think it's about getting rid of all the noise and identifying, you know, right now for this this fire commander in the field, what's the top what are the top three pieces of information or insight that she needs to know to be able to make good decisions here? Basically Right now, in order to digest this, you almost have to be a quant, huh? Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you know some of the companies I talk to, not necessarily well, some of them in emergency management space, some in areas like energy, are actually you know they used to stock their companies with engineers, but now they're stocking them with quants <laughs> um, because <laughs> things are moving from kind of uh, predictable kind of engineering problems to I mean they're still important, but to kind of these these kind of data um, kind of prediction kind of problems. I read uh, Taleb's uh, book, Black Swan, and it really opened my eyes to how we can use data to to really predict, you know, what's happening in, in, in our environment. And it seems like you're kind of putting that uh, theory to, to test here with some of the research that, that you've done. Um I want to talk back about that piece that you wrote um, in the um, the conversation uh, titled "Data Science uh, Could Help Californians Battle Future Wildfires," and and I'm gonna 
I'm going to actually put a, a link to that in the show notes. So if you guys are looking for it, it's well worth the read and, and why I, okay. I invited uh, David on the show. So you, you see an issue. You, you identified a problem. Um, you, you have what I seemed looks like a, a probable solution to, to the problem. Um, what's the next step on, on uh, moving that forward? Well, it's a, it's a big problem. I mean, we've got lots of moving parts. Um, you know, we've got rapidly changing kind of climate environment. We've got, you know, a rapidly changing technological environment. So we're becoming more critically dependent on this kind of weird kind of network data infrastructure and all our stuff is going on it. So, you know, we, we're just about holding out with our two-way radios, but, you know, at some point that's going to merge into the big cloud. Um, so, and, and, and we don't really know what's going to be successful or not successful right now. So, um, you know, one of the reasons we created the Crisis Technologies Innovation Lab at IU is, is, is to simply have a safe sandbox where we can experiment and try some things out and see what works and what doesn't work. You, you know, I think there's some really good reasons why why emergency response and emergency management is a little behind in innovation. I mean, you don't want the paramedic innovating while they're <laughs> intubating you when you're unconscious or something like that. So, you know, for good reason, we, you know, practitioners want to be using stuff that's tried and tested and, and we've, we've tried it in different environments and we know its history and its flaws and stuff. But everything is changing so fast. It's really hard to to know what's going to work and what's not going to work. So so I think there's a real need for not just what we're doing at IU, but other research institutions and companies to be um, kind of filling that space in the middle and helping emergency responders, emergency managers by, you know, kind of battle testing some of this stuff and, and coming out with some, we'd like to come up with some really actionable research and practically helpful research from it. Well, David, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to just kind of discuss some of the remote support that you did. And I want to discuss some of the remote support that some other teams have done. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Welcome back from that quick break, and thank you so much for listening to our sponsor, because without them, we could not bring you quality conversations like we're having here today with David. And uh, please reach out to them and let them know that you heard them here on EM Weekly. So David, before we went on the break, I just alluded to the fact of, of remote support. And in your piece, you talk about how you were in Indiana in a nice, comfortable location, and you're able to help out, you know, um, creating a website, aggregating data about the fire, uh, talking about shelter locations, uh, prediction of the fire spread. What did that look like on, on your end and how receptive were people to using that information? 
Yeah, well, this was a really interesting experience for me. So this was back in 2010 when there were some pretty bad wildfires in Colorado. And by that point, Twitter was was in full swing. So I was like monitoring this on Twitter and I got really interested in what was going on with these wildfires. And I was interested in using Twitter. I had a long-standing interest in using what we then called social media um, to be able to get situational awareness in a, a response phase of a, of a disaster or a crisis. So I started kind of collating information and, and watching what was going on on Twitter, but there's was, there was a lot of confusion. So people were posting really useful things, like somebody made a map of, of like fire locations. I mean, this kind of stuff, which is routine now, but back then it wasn't. And somebody else made a map of shelters and, you know, somebody would tweet it, but if you, unless you were searching for the right hashtag, you wouldn't find it. So I realized that maybe the right, you know, a lot, huge amount of good information there, but it wasn't getting necessarily to the right people. So all I did really was put it into a blog post. I just kept, you know, stayed up late and kept this blog post kind of going and constantly updated. And I pushed it out on Twitter and I had something like 40,000 hits on it. And then people started um, submitting stuff to me. So I became this kind of de facto um, kind of, um, I don't know, kind of arbiter of information or aggregator of information. Um, and it just kind of happened. So um, so that was a kind of fascinating experience for me. It was a little nerve-wracking because I was like, goodness me, I don't really know what I'm doing here. But um, hopefully it was helpful for people and it was certainly interesting for me to see, you know, how, firstly, the importance of social media, but also the importance of, of being able to take all this kind of confusing data out there and try and bring some order to it. Now, we saw this happen with the Joplin tornado as well, and I forget her name, but there was a young lady and her mom who were basically doing the same thing uh, using Facebook, and and they're really actually helping um, tap down some of the rumors that were out there. Uh, I know that the local government was at first not really keen on having them uh, push information this way, um, but they, they... did their due diligence. They did a good job, and, it, and that's one of the reasons why um, Facebook started their "I'm Safe" um, um, portion of their app. And then again, we had this happen again um, with the um, the Cajun Navy uh, during the Houston um, flooding during uh, Her- Harvey, where they were using um, the Zello app, uh, like "Hello with a Z." Um, app that they were able to dispatch uh, people to places using that. And uh, one more story here, Team Rubicon actually has a complete remote team, which is helping to dispatch uh, people from all over the country. Uh, They're at home all over the country, helping the teams that are in uh, harm's way, if you will, for lack of a better term, uh, and and, and using that remote. Are are we going to see a with the use of, of technology, the ability for more organizations to have uh, remote support like what you did in 2010? Yeah, absolutely. I think those examples like the Zello in, in the hurricane are, are kind of fascinating because it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of terrifying for officials and emergency managers, right? Because there's no way you can control this stuff. It's it's like people are just doing things. I mean, it's going through the whole kind of people calling for help, dispatching, 
getting on scene thing as a completely kind of parallel infrastructure. So like all kind of, you know, transformative things, it's kind of a little terrifying when it, it first happens. But I think there's a huge potential. I mean, people love to help. Um, it's, it's interesting research of the different phases that people go through. And you see this coming out in social media. So, you know, people want information like what's going on. And then um, they kind of, there's a kind of collective sense making. So, you know, what, what does this all mean? But then people want to help. So they become digital volunteers and becomes a real thing. So I think, you know, we need to find ways to harness that in in ways that which are not threatening, but which really help us scale response. I mean, I think one one thing we're seeing out of FEMA right now is that they're kind of saying, we we can't really scale to this problem here. Like, we don't have the resources. Like, somebody else needs to start helping out. And, you know, of course, this is, you know, such a strong, long-standing um, hope that communities and individuals and neighbours will, you know, community emergency response teams and so on. Um, it, you know, the interesting thing here is you don't even have to be in the location. You can have a, a emergency response team that's, that's doing data curation uh, distance. So I think there's you know, things like VOST, the virtual operations support teams, are really interesting. Um, in Hurricane Florence, I teach a class in informatics in disasters and emergency response, and we actually had the whole class set up a virtual EOC complete with emergency support functions. And they did a huge amount of analysis and research on live useful information in those ESFs. Uh, created a report and we sent that report to people in the field and we got some indication they found it really useful. So, you know, I think it's actually really helpful often if you're outside of an incident and you're not kind of just in the middle of the complete mayhem. You know, you've got good internet access, you can search for things, you can download things, you can do data analysis. And if you, as long as you've got communication mechanism in and out of the kind of hot zone, then it's often even better to have teams that are certainly complementary, having teams that are distant as well as teams that are local. Well, I mean, that's that's the whole concept of the incident command system, right? I mean, you have your command post that's away from the incident, you know, 10,000 level foot, foot, 10,000 level foot, the 10,000 foot level, and then you have the, um, you know, your EOC at the 30,000 foot level, um, to, to take a look at things to stay out of there. Uh, you know, are our CPs and our EOCs getting too wrapped up in, uh, in, and being too far into the weeds? Um, and is that why having this extra outside, uh, information helps out or is this just an additional layer that we can use? You know, if we can actually have somebody in Indiana helping with uh, fire locations in uh, California. I think right now it's an additional layer. So I don't think there's anything wrong with how we're doing EOCs right now. Um, but I think it's it's not really clear, you know, if you're an EOC and you need something done, how do you get it done? There isn't a good way of just putting it out there saying, hey, hey we need some help. And, you know, specifically, we, we don't know how to credential it. So, you know, maybe you need somebody with certain qualifications or certain background to help. And maybe it's something a little critical you know, you're not really going to throw it out to the internet and have, you know, somebody who you've never met before do it. So so we need to work some of those things out and maybe have some better mechanism for getting a kind of 
I guess what the military would call a common operational picture between right. people on the ground, the people in the ERC, and, and whoever's working in remote locations. I mean, that's a good example of the military. I mean, there's operations that are happening in uh, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq, and they're being supported by Air Force guys in uh, you know, in Vegas, basically. Uh, you know, so we do have the ability now with the uh, with communications to be that distant from each other and still have direct support. Uh, I think it's a really interesting idea to explore uh, when we're talking about um, disasters. And it's not to be you know, you know, halfway around the world. I, I, I can see you know Southern California supporting Northern California in an operation where they're they're overwhelmed with with uh, uh, just just data coming in and, and being able to to analyze that and get a good report up to them. Is that something that you think we can see in the future, uh, in the near future, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's technologies coming in which are going to make it a lot easier to do a lot more remotely. So, you know, drones is one. It's, I mean, right now you can put up a drone and, um, you know, get video feeds and so on and send them anywhere. Um, another one's FirstNet, the um, first responder broadband network. You know, it's still early days, but it's just making it more feasible to you know quickly get reliable internet, even out in a disaster zone. Uh, there's some interesting stuff going on with mesh networks that lets you basically get connectivity even if the internet isn't there. Um, so I think there's going to be like, a, you know, I guess with EOCs, there's been a little bit of a kind of, you know, maybe we could have virtual EOCs and we have to actually have a physical building with a few screens up and laptops and things. Certainly a huge amount of value in people in the same place able to talk to each other. But if you've got good internet, there's some really good video communication stuff right now. So it's all, I think it's experimental right now, but... You know, I think it's a huge opportunity area. So in the next five or ten years, I think we're going to be seeing emergency management done in some kind of different, interesting ways. Oh, yeah, for sure. And especially with the 5G coming up on board um, and, like you said, mesh networking. Matter of fact, uh, Titan HST, the sponsor of this, of this podcast, they have a, uh, a mesh networking um, app that goes on with on your phone so you don't need additional devices so you can still have communication as long as you have both users have app and it's uh, through a system. But, and, you know, so there's there's companies out there that are already leaning forward with this and, and making things happen. So I, I find it um, super interesting. Well, we're we're getting here close to the to the end of of our conversation. Um, I do have a couple other questions for you, really quick. So, I see that you wrote here um, in the uh, uh, in the conversation. How, how else can people find some of the work that you're doing? Um, I have a website. It's just djwild.info. That's d j w i l d dot i n f o. That goes to my kind of main website. Also run a website called allhazards.net um, and I have kind of companion Twitter accounts for both of those. So my regular Twitter account is D-A-V-B-W-I, if I remember that correctly. And I, the one that I tweet most emergency management related content about is just called um, at allhazardsblog. And like uh, my regular listeners know, we'll have that information um, 
in the show notes. And so if your pencil's not sharp or if you're driving down the road, please go ahead and just uh, click into the show notes and you can find David's information down there. All right, David, I'm not going to let you go without the toughest question. What book are you reading right now? Well, um, so many. I'm one of those people that at any one time I'm usually reading about 20 different books and I jump between them. The one that I wanted to pull out is a book called Future Crimes by Mark Goodman. The reason I bring this one up is I think cyber security and kind of cyber attack is a huge issue for emergency management right now. Just look at New Orleans right now, the city kind of brought to a standstill state of emergency because of a ransomware attack. I think it's really tough for emergency managers because even for me as a technologist with 20, 30 years experience in this field, it's really hard to know what the risks are, what the possibilities, what could happen, how to know if you're secure or not. This book just kind of goes through all the worst case scenarios that could happen. And it's got a level of detail that I love. So it's just called Future Crimes Inside the Digital Underground and the Battle for Our Connected World. That sounds like a fantastic read. I'm going to put that on my list for sure. If you could say one thing to all the emergency managers in the world at one time, what would it be? Well, I think I would say, like, take a breath. (laughs) Take a breath and relax a bit. Um, I just really feel for emergency managers right now. I see a lot of particular local emergency managers just kind of drowning in paperwork, trying to make mitigation plans and things. And then the federal ones are drowning in response. So last time I talked to somebody in FEMA, it was in a crackly line to Puerto Rico and they haven't slept for two days. So it's really tough right now. And um, all I would say is that, you know, it's up to people like me who are technologists to kind of come and help you. (laughs) So let us know how we can help, how we can support what you're doing. It's really, really important work. I take my hat off to the practicing emergency managers out there. It's difficult work. So thank you for what you're doing. And I, I want to find ways we can support you with what I'm good at, which is technology. So do you have any more articles coming out? Yeah, we've got, we've got a few more kind of journal articles in the pipeline. Um, I haven't got any, I have a blog both on the old hazard site and my site, so I periodically put things out there. Um, I don't know when the next conversation piece will be, but we'll see. Outstanding. David, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, thank you for doing what you're doing for emergency management. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be on the show, and thank you for asking me. Thank you for listening to this episode of EM Weekly. And please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player. And also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you're looking for more information and more emergency management type podcasts, check out sitchradio.com because there's a full laundry list over there. See you next week.